Well, look, yeah, let's let's get things kicked off. We can we can start here. Parin, thanks for taking the time and being here today. Um, good to have you on board. Uh, be good to yeah briefly introduce yourself and uh, you know who you are, what you do, um, and uh, tell us a bit about Lego Ventures as well. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first and foremost, thank you for having me, and thanks thanks for everyone joining the call. Um, I'm Parin. I have spent about a year now um, at Lego Ventures, and we are a corporate venture capital firm with the quirk of being part of a family-owned business and taking money from our family office. Um, so the Lego family office is Kirkby. Um, they manage multiple billions of dollars because of the success of Lego um, over time. And I'm sure everyone knows of Lego and probably one of the most inspirational and most successful kind of toy companies globally. And I think a core part of the success is really identifying you know, what it means to build a product in the toy space that has resilience. Um, the, the idea that having a system where, you know, there's massive amounts of approach, approachability and agency to the product, you know, anyone can kind of pick up Lego and create. I think that's, that's very core to what we believe in and what we kind of try and invest behind. Um, mm. The Lego idea is really all around learning through play and play being the best way to learn. And we mean, we mean something very specific when we say that and all of us. I think all of that's been proved out by research that we've funded and it's happening at multiple institutions across the globe, like MIT and Cambridge, et cetera. But um, we think about play as being all about fun, active, social, meaningful, iterative experiences. So stuff that you can build with other people, you can kind of pick up, um, you know, build, rebuild. Uh, you know, the word isn't just build, it's, I guess, experience more generally. Um, and we have a strong conviction around the idea of 21st century skills well so creativity collaboration communication critical thinking those four c's which i think are increasingly important in the world that we live in obviously ai is automating a lot of stuff um people are looking for you know how do they lead a life that is kind of most fulfilling and actually true to themselves and um, i think we're at a really important time in terms of all of those things uh, we invest mainly in two sectors so ed tech education technology uh, and gaming as a secondary um sector to be honest, like both are kind of 50-50. And we're working with our family office to kind of spin out a dedicated fund to, to do this on a global basis. Um, by global, we mean Western Europe, China, US. Um, in EdTech, you know, we're after stuff that is really like, doesn't smell like homework, I think is a really nice strap line. So if it's actually fun and people want to sit down and do it, we'd love to take a look at that. Um, within gaming, I think it's it's pretty, it's a pretty sure bet that we're interested in trying to find the next Minecraft and the next Roblox. Uh, like I think creativity underlined in that space is really, really important. And then more broadly, um, I think mobile is huge. Um, so how do you get better experiences on mobile versus you know the Candy Crush experience where you're just tapping on your screen mindlessly and getting a dopamine hit? Right. Um, and before before Lego Ventures, I was at Babylon Health for a couple of years. Uh, sitting between the finance and marketing teams, um, running around putting out fires, and also weirdly leading digital acquisition for a bit before uh, we got some more professional people in, and then uh, also leading the B2C business for a little while. And prior to that, I had five years of experience in the investment banking space, so equity research mainly, um, covering European telecoms, uh, which is not the most sexy sector, but at a time when we didn't have many big listed tech companies uh, in Europe, and that's nice to see that that's changing. Yeah, 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 for sure. So a lot to unpack there, and yeah, fascinating. So, um, 
in in terms of in terms of the the way it's structured uh, uh, as a as a an organization lego ventures are you to some extent separate from lego the company then are you are you managing money from lego's balance sheet from the family office's balance sheet or yes yeah, a good work? question i think like i think all cvcs are def are different and we are definitely um strange in the way that we've organized ourselves but for like very um good reasons so we don't take money from the lego balance sheet i think you know the physical bricks product is the thing that makes money for the Lego group overall. And, mm. you know, the business has done phenomenally well, um, incredibly resilient. It's done really, really well with IPs and storytelling, et cetera, et cetera. And interestingly, is making forays into the gaming space itself, um, which is great to see. And there's a degree of innovation going on within the Lego group. Um, mm. We take money from the family office because it gives us that kind of long-term view and the view into 2032 when the Lego group turns 100. and you know, what should the Lego group look like on that time frame, And what are the pillars within the Lego group that we want to help build? And we want to help build them at the earliest stages by finding the things you know, that are, I guess, innovating around that Lego idea, um, invest small checks, like kind of late seed all the way through to series B, and then see what happens next. And maybe some of those companies we end up acquiring, uh, maybe some of those companies uh, remain independent and some, you know, maybe don't work out or we divest the stake or whatever it is. Um, but I think that gives us that kind of best of both. The family office themselves actually invest quite a lot in um, things like private equity, um, funded funds, direct equity, um, stuff with ESG sustainability at the, at the heart of it, renewable energy and things like that. Right. Where we play into things is that we are investing behind that Lego idea. So the mm. idea is very important to the corporate, but we're trying to build entities that are within kind of this Lego brand wrappers so we like to think about it as kind of like similarities are to like google and alphabet um where the lego brand is kind of the collection of companies that really operate um to to like magnify the impact that the lego idea is having globally mm-hmm. um and does it all so it always comes back to that that thesis of sort of learning through play um is that the case with the gaming stuff does there have to be a learning element to it or like sort of a clear uh view on how it's improving I don't know, the person's mental function, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. So like the, w- the way we think about learning is really, you know, if you're playing and having fun, um, you are actually, you know, you're inevitably you're learning. Right. And that it, to us is, is the best way to learn. So in the gaming space, it's very much about finding those experiences that like really resonate um, with, a, with a user base and target you know, creativity and skill building, uh, collaborative gameplay, cooperative gameplay, uh, put players into kind of challenging positions, whether it's through puzzles, adventure games, real-time strategy, whatever it is, but genuinely get uh, players to think um, and think in a way that maybe challenges their preconceptions. And I think there's mm. there's lots of examples of games that you know, don't do that. And I've mentioned Candy Crush as, as one. I think like Fortnite is maybe a, a kind of a challenging one. Um, I think what Roblox have done that's really interesting is they've allowed bunch of effectively kids to go create games and set up that path to become professional developers further down the line mm. um, and you know there are there are actual professional game studios creating games for roblox now yeah um, i think that's super interesting and, and you know, the future of that is how can we enable a platform which maybe encourages anyone to create and has the types of games on the platform that are a little bit deeper and richer in terms of their experience mm. um, we have this analogy within the lego group where we or Lego Ventures as well, where we talk about tapas and the idea of like, um, you know, we don't want to fund potato chips for the mind. Um, so we don't want kind of like 
your candy diplomatic kind of games and, and all of that stuff. What we really want um, is stuff that's kind of like small bite-sized experiences that you can share with other people. Um, and I think social is really a big, big part of things. Right. Um, and obviously last year we saw things like Among Us um, and things like Four Guys with their kind of wacky take on, you know, a genre that's like Battle Royale or effectively taking what is a board game and turning it into a social game, mm. really succeeding off the back of, you know, social and collaborative gameplay as being towards the proposition. So mm. it doesn't have to really be like, we're not looking for like brain training. Uh, right. But what we're looking for is like the type of game that maybe allows people to express their creative side, whether through building or coloring or designing, um, or allows them to engage in social play, whether it's like, you know, resource allocation type stuff, or whether it's challenges that are only solved through teamwork right. um, and assessing those types of opportunities. I mean, there's right. lots of interesting opportunities that are kind of in the weeds and maybe were popular genres before and are now kind of trying to be relaunched and especially on mobile like the depth of games on mobile um i think will only increase because of the various trends you're seeing there um right. be on the advertising side or, or otherwise right 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 um that, that that's interesting the the sort of piece around around the social stuff in, in particular and, and you sort of seeing that as like a a key part of of what you're doing is that uh and yeah the other one i was thinking of last year is animal crossing right like huge social thing to what they do i mean i'm not a gamer at all personally but it was just fascinating to see how much it, it, it and how fast it grew and how popular it was with such a wide range of people as well um yeah i think i think what's really interesting about social is that like games for a very long amount of time have suffered from being built in the way that movies are built and i think you know like there are people who know how to build creative enterprises very very well like something like 70 percent of the top kids IPs in the world are owned by Disney. Disney right. is a machine for kind of doing that. So I think that's great because right. they fundamentally understand the customer. I think with, with gaming, the market is still maybe not that mature and there are lots of people who want to make games and make the game that, um, you know, really has been burning inside them. There's a desire to like make this specific type of game. And they go do that for several years and they launch and maybe it isn't as successful as they would have hoped. Um, mm. Whereas now I think we're transitioning to a world where when you add social into the mix, it's kind of like, what does the community want? And what are the kind of key KPIs within that um, you know, development roadmap that you have to optimize for? And how do you create those social mechanics within a game that means that you're, you're maximizing on retention uh, within right. the game? And I think that gives games a, a bigger chance of succeeding. It also allows designers of games to look at communities that already exist and try and build for those communities. You know, there's like a huge, um, fan base of people who have played League of Legends and are now in their kind of mid thirties and, you know, don't have the free time maybe to go dive into that world. Plus it's like, you want to be called a noob by some like, you know, 18 year old, basically <laughs> you're in your mid thirties. So, you know, designing games for those types of people that may be less toxic and allow, you know, people to kind of get involved a little bit easier and have more asymmetric play to them. Um, but there are there are these huge established audiences, right? Like you know, you might think back to what was the game that you played when you were a kid that you remember that like you haven't picked up in ten years, and would you, on a weekend now, pick up that game with your friends and maybe play it? Um, you know, it might be the case that you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary says The Sims. I think Animal Crossing is like a, a good a good analogy for like a more social version of The Sims in a lot of ways, isn't it? You're sort of like Definitely, cultivating yeah. things and 
And, and one of the one of the companies that we've bagged actually in the portfolio is a company called Clang Games, who are uh, based in Berlin. And what what they're trying to do is effectively build The Sims, uh, but in space. Right. And you you know you land in this kind of post-apocalyptic world, uh, and it's you have these two seedlings, and then you're trying to like rebuild the world around you. And there's a lot of interesting cool. mechanics there around you know you're now a grown-up, so like governance, politics. Um, navigating the strategies of like building a civilization, like legals, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, um, so so I think there's a couple of things. It's like gaming has made this transition from like uh, nerdy to like very mainstream and, and a huge industry now, especially with younger people, right? Like uh, Gen Z and 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 below. It's it's just like par for the course. And then also like on this social point, it's sort of like you know, the original people thinking about the internet were ex imagining these visions of like cyberspace and people connecting online in digital worlds and that sort of thing. And, you know, like all the way back to like William Gibson novels, right? Like a long time ago, people were sort of imagining this crazy future and it yeah. feels a little bit like it's coming true now. Like I dug into it a little bit, you know, the word that keeps coming up is the metaverse. And um, it seems to like the timing is good in terms of, the pandemic having accelerated that and then like stuff that's happening in blockchain as well in terms of like interoperability of of stuff yeah. maybe interesting to dig into that a bit and you know what your view is on the metaverse yeah um, i think you know the, the the idea of the metaverse has been around for a really long time and people in the call may have seen um eric reese's startup that's been going for like 17 years imvu raised uh, a bunch of money the other day i think it's like a 30 million dollar round from um, NetEase and some others. So, you know, like there's these platforms like IMVU, like Second Life, but obviously, you know, Roblox and Fortnite is the kind of the newer challenges in the space that have elements of the metaverse. And I think like what Epic is doing is, is pretty interesting because um, there's a philosophical point around like, what does it mean to be a metaverse? And mm. you know, maybe if you think about the way that um, people were talking about it, um, 10 20 years ago and the idea of like this singular persistent world um that exists like globally and where people spend a bunch of their free time um and it's kind of this yeah their second life um you know logically there should only be one of those um right and i, I don't think you know like that's probably not where we're headed uh, but i guess that was the vision uh, it's kind of you know a replica of the world and then when you think about like you know what are the venture um, arguments around what that means, like take everything that's part of the GDP of the world and then times two, right? Potentially. So you want to invest the, the size of the gaming economy, if you're thinking about it like that, and thinking about like monetizing people's attention could be massive. Yeah. Um, I think where we are is there's an infrastructure layer that's being built by people like Epic and Unity uh, with Epic Online services and the engines and like various kind of features. But it's becoming this kind of like infrastructure layer to the metaverse, which loads and loads of people are kind of building off. Um, and we're peeling off into these kind of communities, which are very familiar to certain types of people. So I think Roblox is definitely one community for younger kids. Uh, maybe Minecraft is the next one and then migrate onto Fortnite and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe there are going to be these types of communities for adults. Um, I think blockchain is really interesting to me, especially, um, in terms of like the, the idea of pride of creation and the idea of like curation and collection. So you know, like what value does your time have? Um, can you uh, create things within these platforms that exist in a persistent way? Can you then transport those assets into other games? 
um, can you monetize you know your creations and is that then you know almost like a, a job for you um i think all those questions are really interesting i think people at the forefront of that are, are really um the guys at dapper labs who are kind of building their own blockchain from the ground up and have partnered with you know, the guys behind crypto kitties they've partnered with um right. it's the mba to kind of like make uh you know the new version of, of collectible cards so imagine lebron james dunks in the fourth quarter um and he, and he wins the game that moment is captured on the blockchain becomes a collectible and you can easily see how moments within games you know an esport where someone wins over someone else can then be memorialized and inscribed on the blockchain has you know value to it as a collectible mm. that's that's mm. really interesting mm. that that element of like the the ability to make assets unique using blockchains which didn't exist before in the internet right it used to be stuff was just copyable infinitely and that 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 decreases its value really right to, to zero basically it's interesting to see how things are like returning to like having non-fungible assets and yeah. i've seen a lot of people doing stuff like you know basically like football stickers but on the blockchain and you know all, all sorts of like as you alluded to right with the nba um uh, stuff yeah they're also uh, they're also startups like koji um in the us who are trying to kind of use blockchain to power a creator economy so it's all about you know, someone creates something and then the i think some one of the core leaps around creating is like remixing so you take right. someone's original creation and you kind of like build on top of it and you create something else and you get that kind of community viral loop thing around it yeah. um with koji what they're trying to do is um the original creator gets monetized is allowed to monetize uh, in a way where it incentivizes them to share and then others can kind of jump on board and they get a small percentage of every single evolution right. of that creation i mean that type of model right. is really interesting i think the consumer education piece to get to that point still may take a while and all these trends take a really long time to kind of manifest but it seems like it's going in that direction mm, mm. yeah that's really interesting like always capturing in future a piece of value that allows you to build a recurring revenue stream basically right and um that's what everyone wants ultimately right is some way to make money while you sleep if if we can unlock a world where as many people as possible can do that then uh, and in, and inspire others right like yeah, inspiring yeah. others to i think if you if you have a world where anyone can kind of express themselves and get an audience and start um, sharing, contributing, and you know, really engaging, I think that is far. But what really interests me about like this idea of the passion economy is that it's come at a time where the gig economy is effectively the thing employing you know thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, um, and you can argue to what extent that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you know, it's. Mm it's kind of an automating force which gets us our free delivery very very quickly but maybe doesn't maximize on that person's agency whereas now you're finding a way of maybe engaging in the, the type of work that you really wanted to do um and being able to kind of succeed in that and, and build that audience and there are multiple platforms allowing you to share your knowledge or retrain or whatever it is yeah um, and that's really exciting yeah so you see an overlap you talked before about 21st century skills. So I guess that sort of ties into that, right? It's about giving people the ability to do things that they, um, that they enjoy. And then also yeah. is there something about re what are 21st century skills? Is it about retraining? Is it about being able to learn? And does, is that how it sort of ties into Lego's investment thesis? I think it's, yeah, it's a really good point. So, you know, we, as, as nice Lego people, we, we look at kind of children as our inspiration and i think you know no one would claim that like children are not creative they're like born as creative individuals i think that's that's same of that's the same of all people um and there's a famous quote from someone 
it's it's something like um you know we we grow up because we stop playing effectively right right um, like we're all born artists and then we sort of squeeze the creativity out of everyone and <laughs> yeah and i think and i think obviously there's a tooling element to that um so you know there might be various tools that are really allow really high accessibility and allow anyone to create and i think those are the types of tools which we love to see because what they can do is you know take someone's passion um, and channel it in the really in, in the right direction and really get that, it's that almost that time to mastery component uh, is compressed. So you know you right. could tomorrow go and try and train to be a Unity developer, and it would take you some time to get to a level where you're creating games um, that are professional enough to be published on the App Store and make a living. But any child can kind of go on Roblox and learn how to code in Lua and build a game very, very quickly with design components that can make that a, a hit game. And mm. um, there are other platforms that, you know, have no code elements and other things that are taking, you know, regular people and allowing them to you know, do whatever they want. Right. And not everyone will be able to create, you know, like a Michelin star meal, but, you know, everyone will be able to create an omelette and then it's kind of an iterative process from there. Like, um, I think it definitely opens up the channels by which you basically say, like, I've got limited time on a weekly basis, but I really would love to be, I don't know, like a sneaker designer. And I can use XYZ platform to then start making really cool sneakers and maybe eventually sell them. And, and there's a company called Artifacts that's going to do just that. Um, like right, such interesting. Model. So I think there's loads of these kind of white spaces where you might take an existing consumer model and a touch of kind of UGC creative component and like, you could get some really really powerful returns from that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting on like a, a broader sort of question of of, of sort of economics and, and financial markets if you're able to create this world where everyone's you know doing things that they want to be doing rather than that they have to be doing um yeah. and um everyone's able to to monetize you know sort of recurring um, sources of revenue and whatever for, for the IP that they produce potentially. Um, yeah, is that possible? Like a part of me always feels like, you know, <laughs> you know, Marx would always say, right, there's, there's like people deploying labor and there's people laboring, right? And if you don't have the people laboring, like you don't have the, the productive capacity in the economy. Do you think that's going to change in the 21st century because of, of tech? I think it's a, it's a massive question. I don't claim to be an economist. And if my brother was listening to this, uh, who actually is an economist, he'd probably um, shudder in horror. But I think you know, it's, it's an equation where it's labor and capital. And um, the, the capital that is being thrown around at the moment is all about you know, robotics, process automation, mm. um, AI-enabled fulfillment, and effectively kind of bridging that gap between stuff that was done badly. You know, I always look at like, places that I've worked at as well, and I'm... I assume that you know the places I've worked at are pretty, you know, they're up they're up there in terms of where people have wanted to work. And sometimes, you know, you look around the office and like no one's really doing any productive work. I wouldn't say like financial services necessarily, you know, benefit from a hundred traders trading various instruments to try and like eke out that like last percentage efficiency in a market. Right. There's lots of jobs out there that are done in a very laborious way and are done in a way where uh, technology could easily automate and provide you know massive gains both in terms of like cost but also value yeah. i think that's always what we used to think about Babylon health like it's all about like highest value uh unlock 
um, that a technology might be able to to create. So I think when when you think about that, like there's a lot of jobs which will just disappear, mm. um, which is slightly terrifying for you know if, if I think about like when I have kids, I have no idea where to direct them. Um, but I think what it what it means is there probably needs to be a mechanism around government that is. And I speak to them, you know, a little bit more left wing than others, but like some form of kind of universal basic income or some mm. way of kind of monetizing the collective innovative capacity of of any given economy. And obviously that has to be achieved by taxation or, or something like right, that. Right, right. If the robots are doing the labor, then you have to tax the robots and redistribute the spoils in, in some way, right? Or else people don't have money to spend. Ultimately. Exactly. And you're not you're not trying to tax you're not trying to prevent innovation, but what you're trying to do is make sure that everyone in a society is sharing from the gains of smart people who um, hopefully do want to give back to yeah, yeah. the country they, they uh, yeah. have you know, benefited from and, and all, yeah. all of that stuff. So then I guess the question is, um, what do you do next? And I think this whole trend of people, I think if you look 20 years ago, there's massive pressure. And I, I think even now, like the difference between the European ecosystem and the US ecosystem is, is very much along the lines of, I look at people I went to school with and, and many, many of those people are still in banking, at law firms, doing you know whatever they do, and it's perfectly respectable professions, uh, but it doesn't necessarily allow you to you know maybe realise uh, a step change uh, or impact the world in the way that you might want to impact it. And I think that trend of people moving into the startup space is really, really interesting, with yeah. more and more capital flowing into VC to underpin that. Um, and you know that's a trend that's going to stick around for a very very long time. So. That in effect is pulling more and more people into this kind of creative enterprise or that way of thinking about the world. Yeah. And obviously there's a range from very, very small companies doing this to growth capital being allocated to kind of smaller businesses to maybe, you know, sole traders trying to do something on their own. And there are platforms like Only OnlyFans and Patreon and others that have you know a bit of a dodgy rep, but elements of it is very positive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are there are other things like um, the platform called Kabaji in the US that is all about you know you taking your skills and just creating a course from scratch and teaching others right. and making a business out of that. And I think right. there are more and more there are going to be more and more platforms that aspire to kind of capture some of this value and generate a lot of outside value from more and more people kind of coming in. And you know, there's a I think it's well known in like VC circles a lot of the, the knowledge that people. Um, habits really, really valuable is, is stuck in their heads. And mm-hmm. it's like the ability to kind of extract that in the right way um, and almost accelerating the learning process, which I think is, is really, really cool. Because even now, um, you know, you, people learn by doing, people learn through playing. And that still isn't the case, um, you know, almost globally. So getting people to, whether it's in a kind of professional sense or whether it's uh, kind of in a more personal sense getting people to kind of learn how to create and like become their their best self i think is it's like an all-encompassing idea which is i yeah. think it's really cool to kind of be part of yeah, yeah, yeah. we're investing behind that really yeah cool. i agree it, it is exciting and it, it's it's nice to hear you say that and like i think it's it's nice that that people are starting to have that sort of mindset and and, and ambition in, in europe i think you know uh a lot of people are very skeptical uh, about things and, and, you know, like to sort of stick to the way things have worked in the past, but definitely the world is changing in sort of a fundamental way. And I think people will have, will have more different types of jobs over the course of their career and they'll have to learn new skills, you know, on, on sort of a constant basis. Um, but it's about, 
learning to embrace that. I definitely think there's an institutional element that needs to happen where there's like a safety net for people. Um, and definitely, you know, in tech circles in the US, they, they embrace that, right? Like and Andrew Chen was the big uh, sort of progressive um, flag bearer for, for um, the Democrats. And he talks a lot about universal basic income. Um, I'm conscious we've got a lot, a lot of questions here and it'd be good to sort of open the floor um, and, and sort of let, let people chime in and, and ask a few things. Um, so what, what we could probably do is just, uh, I'll pick people out and then you can un, unmute and ask the questions yourself. Um, so if we start with, with Mary, you had a couple of questions. One about uh, VR in gaming. And then uh, also, I think that's a really good one in the education space. Um, what have you not seen? Are you there? All right. Um, yeah. The so question. The question's on um, VR games first. Yes. And yeah. What have we not seen that we would love to invest in education? That's a really good question. Um, so VR, like, really interesting. Um, I think a lot of investors have been burnt by VR. Obviously, you know, 2012, 2013, when Oculus came out, there's a lot of fanfare, and I think, like, you know, when you ultimately we do have this kind of product-driven you have the world at Lego. And I think when you marry product plus distribution, um, ultimately you get growth and you get a, you get a company. Um, and a great product without great distribution is, is just another great product that is, isn't going to scale. So I think that's really interesting because VR and the VR ecosystem is now being supercharged by the fact that people like um, you know, Valve and Facebook and others are taking it much more seriously and also the fidelity of experiences on those devices um, has become much, much better. Also the controls themselves, you know, used to be much more um, applied to kind of like fast twitch and there wasn't that much eye tracking and it was like very much conducive to a certain type of game. I think now that stuff is definitely changing and you know, I just bought the Oculus Quest 2, the latest one, but the you know, device cost is now like under $300. Um, you can connect it up to a gaming PC and play you know, Half-Life in a way that you would never be able to experience that world. And I think it's definitely really, really cool. That said, there are still you know, very basic experiences on VR that um, you know, there's a limitation on the kind of complexity that you can generate in the VR world and, and also you know, like, there's a space constraint in the world in a very practical way. So I think like, for us, VR is definitely taking off. I think conceptually, Lego Ventures, do we love it or not? We don't know yet. Um, is it healthy to put kids in front of a screen that's like literally right there in front of their face? I didn't claim to be an expert on that. I don't know. Um, but I think the one interesting use case we saw last year was this company called Hollow Ride. Uh, they were trying to put VR in the car. And I personally love that idea. We managed to sell it that successfully internally. But the idea of turning, for passengers anyway, turning the car into a theme park and unlocking a whole new distribution channel for VR headsets, because it's really like it rides on the installed base of these headsets i think it's like really really exciting so um i think the ecosystem is definitely maturing uh the danger is you're at the kind of mercy of facebook a little bit um which is slightly terrifying place to be um but maybe it's you know something which will take off and i think you know with apple venturing into the space with more of an ar product um yeah it's something that we're looking at and if there's creativity in that space we'd, we'd love to look at it a bit more closer 
uh, bit more closely, education, what, what haven't we seen that we would love to invest in? I think like EdTech we appreciate is a little bit of a niche in terms of, um, you know, market. And the kind of like what you teach component of EdTech is very much defined by curricula in a country by country way. And there's some standardization there with sciences basically taught in the same way and maths basically being taught in the same way, but other subjects where it's a little bit different like history. Um, but I think the how of teaching and the pedagogical side of things, there's a lot to do there that still isn't being done. And a lot of that relies on kind of systems change as well. And it's to do with assessment and various other things. And um, I would encourage more and more founders to try and take a transformational approach to EdTech. You know, there's a lot of like online tutoring platforms out there. There's a lot of like learn how to code online for kids. Mm. Um, there's a lot of like robot companies that's fine and maybe one of those one or two of those will succeed and language learning similarly but like what is the transformational way in which you can prioritize the types of skills that you want your kids growing up and learning you know I speak as someone who did a useless chemistry undergraduate degree that I've never used since and was just a way of kind of showing off effectively mm. um, like you know it's it's kind of a process which we put kids through we put young adults through and it's whether mm. like what is the future of that like how can you learn tangible skills that are actually really transformational maybe yeah. that isn't just learning the next uh, coding language it's about a process way of thinking so i, I yeah. imagine the tricky thing for founders right is like if you go to a vc and say you're an ed tech business then the, the first thing they think is mm, no one makes any money in ed tech uh driving revenue as a founder in edtech is really hard because you're dealing with the government and then as you say you've got different stipulations from different governments and local authorities and all that sort of thing yeah. um do you think there's this sort of like uh low-hanging fruit or new approaches like what what do those new approaches look like are you, are you are you seeing stuff that that you think is moving it in the right direction yeah so i think i think with covid like everyone has now realized that their child's education cannot just be left to the government and it's also incredibly hard to teach kids yourself as a parent like uh almost impossible um and you're kind of like learning as you as you go as well so the natural question is like what does that mean for uh, various markets and we think like b2c has been a big winner um through covid and will it continue i think probably so because nothing changes in terms of the way that your child is necessarily taught at school um there, there might be a step change in terms of like it goes back to your child goes to class and whatever but Ultimately, that like after school component is really, really important. Right. Um, I think like, you know, examples of companies like OutSchool in the US, OutSchool has done phenomenally well, um, teaching all types of like subjects, um, whether they kind of have a creative focus or not um, through COVID. And like a lot of parents have like relied on OutSchool in terms of like a deep and uh, rich uh, creative medium um, or educational medium for their kids. So I think that's one example of a company that we we have noticed. But I think also like the valuations in EdTech, you know, something has to change. These are big, big markets, albeit the market is dominated by publishers who haven't done anything innovative in many, many years, are basically taking taxpayers' money and like, um, you know, have this like massive monopolistic position and can just charge more and more money for effectively very dated materials and like don't innovate. And I think that is like the really shocking truth of like, where does government money go these days? And like, that probably requires a bit of legislation to kind of get around that. But there are online tutoring platforms that are raising at multiple billions of dollars. You know, even Europe has its own ed tech unicorn in uh, Kahoot, which is just a kind of quiz platform, um, mm. more kind of on the B2B SaaS end of things, but still very, very interesting. So um, yeah, and I think you can, you can do 
And then there are like transformational models, if you look closely, taking very traditional industries and transforming them and making them far, far better, I think is a really good way to kind of go because what you're doing is taking existing demand um, and providing a solution that is like, you know, hopefully a few multiples better. So I think of like Babylon as a good example of, good example in healthcare, but there's companies who are doing something similar in like the nursery, early childcare space, um, people like Family, people like Tiny, um, and there are others that are trying to build like the next university. So um, LIS is an example of like a new challenger university in, in London, which mm. is basically trying to reinvent how you learn and what you learn within kind of higher education. Yeah, that feels like a big one, especially because as a university, they've got like, you know, if you look at the US universities, a lot of them are private and then partly funded by public money. And yeah. like, I, I think, in, you know, in um, that piece, It's Time to Build, that Mark Andreessen wrote, he, he, he was saying, you know, why aren't Harvard delivering their courses to a million people instead of like, you know, a, a select number of people? Like, obviously, they have their reasons in terms of their brand and that sort of thing. But like, if we're really talking about the mission here being like, you know, to improve people's standard of living and, and these sort of values that we supposedly hold dear in the West, then, you know, we really need to scale that stuff. Um, and yeah, the other bit, I guess, going after the consumer wallet is what, is what you're saying and, and, and focusing on the, the family um, themselves rather than trying to go by, by the government, I think is, is, is obvious and, and quite interesting. Um, Pontus, you had a couple of questions. Do you want to unmute yourself and, and chime in? Yeah, hey, buddy. Um, hey, Perrin as well. Super thankful for you sharing your insights. I, I'm, um, I'm mainly wondering, you, you mentioned uh, a lot about like no code and the ability for users to kind of create, create their own world and so on. I'm right now building a, a marketplace builder and we are like in between, okay, basically discussing how much customizability should we enable for creators and, and our users. And we get different, <laughs> different, uh, kind of thoughts from different creators and I would love to hear whether you have any thoughts regarding like how much customizability you enable for users versus kind of how how quick you make it for users to get started. Yeah I think I think it's a really interesting question and I think with every community you you kind of get a community driven response eventually right like you build a, a certain MVP of people actually using those features or not. Um, I love I just love the example of what you know Roblox have done over the years, like Roblox's starting point was, it was a like basically like a physics engine, um, like a massive sandbox where you could kind of very easily in a very light way code any type of experience that you want. And then they let the community run with it. Um, and what ended up happening was people started creating all kinds of wacky things where you could adopt pets and where, you know, like there were like runners, like runner games and like platformers and whatever. And then there were some emergent winners from that. And it took a very long time for the kind of consumer hits or the, you know, the, the kind of player pacing hits to emerge. And that's one way of going about it. Obviously you, maybe you want some more like templating in there or some element of kind of like gamifying a tutorial to make people create certain types of experiences that you believe uh, chime with the other side of, pla of the platform, but you can leave it like very free and, and get potentially really, really good results. Um, I think the other side of it is like what Roblox don't do a lot of is like it's very hard for you to create certain types of things in Roblox. So try making a car in Roblox. Um, you know, you'd think, hey, pretty easy. You know, like uh, cars are very a, a big part of like Grand Theft Auto, or whatever. There should be a Grand Theft Auto clone on Roblox. Incredibly difficult to make a car. Um, so maybe that that world of like templating and like 
sets and almost having like you know various API calls and integrations is really interesting and like trying to channel in the the value of what everyone else has built as well. So I'm surprised that you're not able to import more assets and objects that others have already built that are kind of like more open source. And then that enables a whole, you know, the next level of building, for example. So yeah, I think very challenging question, but um, hopefully you have, you know, you're able to segment that user base very well and have some power users that are a good proxy for the overall market, which is always, always a challenge in like early stage. Um, but yeah, interesting philosophical question. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks, Pontus. Uh, yeah, interesting question. Um, you guys should check out Offscript, comp Pontus's company. They're doing cool stuff. Um, basically, a way for creators to monetize their audience um, from a marketplace of consumer goods. Um, I, I think that's a really interesting one. It's like you're seeing more of these sort of freeform platforms in lots of different places. Like Notion is like a very open sort of product that can be used in so many different ways, right? People are building CRMs on there. People are building websites. People are managing communities through it. We do a lot of our stuff on Notion, probably should do more, more of it through Notion. Um, but but it, 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 I think it's also like thinking about what the user need is and, and uh, uh, you know, how do you deliver that functionality quickly? Do they want an open platform or do they want something yeah. very specific, simple, easy and, and quick? And I think re retention is the number one metric. I think everyone mm. talks about that, but it's, you can then boil that down into feature retention. So, hey, I've built and shipped this feature of people actually people actually using it is it really valuable and you can you can kind of try and analyze that in terms of both users but also value mm -hmm. all right and here's a, here's a different one from from uh he's to three van heften he's do you want to do you want to dial in say hello to correct you on my on the pronunciation i'll ask the question <laughs> yeah no thanks paddy it's uh, it's case there yeah. Um, super interesting discussion so far, guys. Uh, thanks, Paddy, for sharing your kind of insights. Mine goes back to, to, to more kind of the core CVC model. Just really want to understand how you guys think about the non-financial upside and element of your investments from a strategic point of view. And I guess more kind of how you think about CVC is typically either derive some sort of benefit um, or a different way you you're able to provide some sort of unique insight to your portfolio companies as a result of your kind of core business. So it's kind of a two-part question, but feel free to answer either one or the other. Yeah, no, it's, a it's a really good question, like something which we debate extensively um, at Lego Ventures because we are structured in the way that we are. So I think with, with some corporate VCs, you know, it's all about like corp dev and, you know, what immediate value might we extract from investment and can we incorporate that into our organization or product or whatever it is um, and we don't do we don't do that yet we don't have that mandate but what we do have is basically a priority on the strategic side that is all around this idea of learning through play so our assessment is you know very very rigorous around like do we think you know this is actually learning through play and is it fun is it very active is it social is it iterative and does it mean something? And then does it teach those 21st century skills? And we're definitely strategic first and then financial second. And we try and you know demo the product um, as much as we can and then work out like, is this a really Lego-like experience? And can we see this scaling in a way that allows more and more people globally to benefit from this Lego idea? Um, and that's, that's genuinely how we go about assessing opportunities in the financial case. 
obviously we have to kind of believe that it's going to be commercially successful and we're looking for um, you know outsized returns like everyone else but maybe there's a kind of trade-off to be made in terms of we believe this strategy is like bang on point for that lego idea which we believe you know truly can be very commercially successful and also have an impact and therefore the capabilities that the lego group has in our knowledge and understanding might be able to be leveraged and provide additional value to that portfolio company um, in terms of what that insight and knowledge is i think you know we understand creativity very very well i think when it comes to kids we understand that target market very very well and approaches to like in terms of go to market uh, productizing distribution if there's a physical component we kind of we don't do a lot in that space uh, but we know toys very well we also have our own kind of game studio internally that we're building out um, and we do have an entity called lego education as well that is in the business of selling uh, to schools across the world so it's that kind of like corporate knowledge that we can leverage and, and provide value for our portfolio um, and yeah we have a whole team called value creation that, that does that and that's both internal networks but also external networks so in china we're very close to a company called tencent that you may have heard of uh, in the us you know suddenly there are, there are contacts there that we can uh, lean on and, and help you know connect people up to but i think it's always an interesting question because ultimately as a founder you should assume that whenever an investor tells you something we can add loads of value like just discount it and assume it's not true because they might just give you money and disappear and that's they're perfectly within their rights to kind of do that um, I think with a CVC and especially one with a mission driven element to it, I think that's one refreshing uh, part of working uh, for Lego Ventures. And the fact we're structured as we are means that we are kind of moved away from that short termist view on like what is a Lego group doing and more into that world of like what is the legacy that the Lego family want to leave. So that's, I think that's my answer to that question. Uh, that Lauren, sounds like a, sorry. Um, that sounds like a, a good balance. I think it's such an interesting one in corporate venture. Like uh, what you find as a founder, I think often if you speak to other investors and say, oh, we're talking to this corporate venture firm, they'll be like, oh, you know, we're, we're a bit wary of that. Um, but I think there is so much that corporate venture can offer. So like I, I'd also be interested to, to understand, to, to build on that. Once Lego's invested, to what extent do you have access to the group and how do the who are the catchers or whatever within the group right if you guys are pitching these these businesses into them that you've invested in um how, how does that sort of post-investment partnership work is, is it is it close is it at arm's length yeah i think i think it definitely does depend and it's like down to the portfolio company and, and how much they want to work with us um you know on a whatever it is weekly bi-weekly basis and we try and when we invest we try and get a board seat um whether it's an observer seat or a, you know, a voting seat uh we try and do that because i think the insights from the board are already valuable in and of themselves yeah uh, but we have you know point people within the lego group that are really happy to help and facilitate conversations so a good example is we have lego foundation lego foundation's job is to publish research on like what is the right way to learn and what is like learning through play and there are examples of portfolio companies who have worked with representatives at Lego Foundation to really build out, you know, the core content of their product, which I think is like, there's no other organization in the world who would be able to do that for you. It's really, really cool. Um, I think on the other side of it, there are um, experiments that we've done within the Lego group that haven't worked out and we have insights from that. You know, we were doing like VR in like the 1990s, which is absolutely hilarious. 
um, but it's, it's something the Lego group did. So there are insights from uh, you know 30 years of mainly failed exper experiments, but um, 30 years of like work that I think people can definitely draw off the back of. And you know we've hired some interesting people as well. So the CTO of Lego Education is someone who invented Scratch, the coding program, and used to be at like DIY.org, which is all about, it's kind of like a maker platform. Um, so there are very cool people within the group who they have joined because they love Lego, they love the philosophy and are interested in innovation more generally. So we try and you know tap the right people on the shoulder and, and tap mm. people who really do want to take part and add value. Um, and you know, similarly, like within the team, we have people who have a former startup background, people who are, have more of an investing background, and like a, di a diverse range of people um, who can help in in various ways. Mm, mm. And sort of open the right sort of doors for the right situations and that sort of thing, I imagine. Um, and then one from, from Alex Breeden, back to sort of gaming and, and what you're looking for in, in games. Um, Alex, you with us? Hey guys, yeah, really interesting discussion so far today. Um, yeah, just a, just a broad one from me. I, I'm just sort of interested to see what sort of aspects of game mechanics you see as a differentiator or learning through play when analyzing games or ed tech and you know, what aspects of that learning to play and gamification sort of element are sort of underutilized by startups or you see as underutilized in the startup space that could boost engagement? Yeah, really, really good question. Uh, I don't claim to be a game designer. Um, and I'm relatively new on this topic as well, but there's, um, there's a guy called Yukai Chu uh, who has, he has this framework called Octalysis and he also has, um, a book that's called Actionable Gamification. Um, if you sign up to his course and you answer all of his quiz questions and you send that through to him, uh, he will send you a free copy of the book. So you don't have to go buy it for $15 or whatever it is on Amazon. Um, but it's a great example of like one of the types of techniques that people can use uh, to gamify an experience. And I think like you know, historically people thought gamification was you, know, you put a bunch of coins in and you collect the coins and then that makes people want to kind of um, you know, keep on playing and get up the leaderboard, you put leaderboard in, you know, leaderboard leadership mechanics and like social proof and all that stuff. And those might be compelling ways in which to kind of attract people and retain people. Um, we're looking for methods that aren't exploitative or don't resemble uh, doping driven or gambling type mechanics. Um, so I think the interesting distinction that Yukai makes is there are white hat techniques and black hat techniques. And the idea of a white hat technique is it's, and you know, you can't just use those things, but if the, if the main strategies are very intrinsic motivators, then those are the strategies which will keep a user in a way that isn't, you know, they're not like being hooked into a game or an abstract reason like, you know, uh, being bribed or punishment or whatever it is. It's more about you know, their skill, their mastery, learning, giving something back to that user. And I think like those are the types of techniques which uh, we love to see. I think like the UGC loop is, is one which is like a great illustration of that. Um, the other side of it is you know, maybe there are mechanics where um, you know, like it's social, but in a way where it's not like social proof but it's, and I think like this, pulling it back down to 21st century skills is actually a really good way of looking at it because it's like, what are like, are you actually building um, enriching deep experiences that give something back to the user and like give them a real skill? So um, yeah, I would take a look at the book. It's a really, really great read. 
yeah, I'll check, I'll check it out. Thanks. Nice, great question, Alex. I, I always think that's a really hard challenge in product design generally, right? Like, how do you, in a world where everyone's in this, you know, sort of dopamine thirst trap or whatever you want to call it, like, how do you design products that are uh, that people keep using that aren't using some sort of like psychological hook to keep to keep people reeled in? That's that's bad for them. Yeah, um, and people used to use really lazy techniques, right? Like um, notifications, like. Apps would just keep on um, you know, sending you random ping notifications, and eventually, like the default was all notifications off. And even now, like you know, that's the thing that I go through whenever I download an app: make sure the notifications are off. If you're not adding anything valuable in terms of the content you're providing your um, customer that doesn't like chime or like you know align with the use case and the reason why the app exists, then you're effectively pissing them off, and they're going to disappear eventually. So um, it's it's respecting that user which is like the overriding mm. philosophy and it's hard because it's still you know you want to get their attention but you want to provide them value mm. Mm. it's tricky when you're going up against these businesses with with ad space models as well right because their their whole product design basically pivots around how do you retain that user's attention for as long as possible in order to sell them as much shit as possible yeah and there's a there's an ecosystem point here as well so you know Arguably, an app store model encourages apps to be built in a way where they aggressively monetize their users simply because you know cost of acquisition is very, very high. You're pulling a user off a platform where they are engaged into a flow that is deeply disengaging, like downloading a new app, going through that flow is like mm. horrible. Mm. Um, and because of that cost, you then need to monetize them relatively quickly. Mm. So, you know, a world of post app store maybe means that you don't have to necessarily design experiences in that way and they're a little bit better mm, mm. it's a tricky one um telfan you had uh, an interesting question about um the future of education yeah actually uh, i think you largely answered it in uh the questions that um, you were just answering. Yeah, it was mostly about this idea of the future of university courses. So if people go to university now because they want to get a job at Google or if they want to get a job at Apple or whatever, then um, Scott Galloway, who's professor of business at NYU Stern, um, talks about this idea of you know, companies running, taking over the responsibility of running those courses. So, you know, Google might run a Google course, so you can become a Google accredited engineer. Uh, Disney might do something similar via the expertise in Pixar for, for training um, digital media professionals. And then, of course, they could hire directly out of those courses and take a share of other companies who are hiring out of their courses who want to get in on their business model. I, I was interested, you know, maybe Lego doesn't fit into that, but you know, if Lego were to run a course, like what is their core kind of educational IP? Maybe something that's like reflected in their um, company culture. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, in terms of like higher education piece, if you look at some of the content that Emerge Education have put out there, um, really great guys, really great team. They've done a lot of work in this kind of higher education space. So uh, they published a blog post yesterday about like the different models through which universities can generate additional revenue through partnerships and you know other ways in which 
institutions can kind of, or new startups can facilitate corporate learning. So take a look at that because I think they um, they're definitely experts in in that kind of space. When it comes to when it comes to Lego, I think you know our like DNA is all about like building and creating. So I think if you look at a platform like Lego Ideas, where anyone can submit um, an idea for a Lego set uh, onto this Ideas platform, it then gets voted and then ultimately potentially made and you get a royalty fee off the back of like creating um, one of those models. I think that's really cool and like almost, you know, creating by uh, doing and facilitating that kind of like idea exchange because the product itself is so malleable and easy for anyone to get into. Um, I think the other side of it is like um, probably like working out how to um, allow people to create and build um, or share, I guess they're kind of like just acknowledge or maybe like have that, that platform where, you know, you can teach your peer group. And I think maybe that's kids. So we would love to, you know, we have an internal incubation unit. We would love to kind of take, you know, not just the people that we see, but many, many more people through this flow of like, hey, I'm, you know, a young kid who knows something about the world and I would want to teach my peers and, and generate educational content, whether it's like you know, foundational subjects or, or otherwise and, and deliver it to a, a wider um, peer group. And I think like if you think about the mechanics around gaming and kids creating games for the kids, it's not that far off um, a world where kids might be educating other kids or that idea of like more of a flipped classroom or a, um, a collaborative classroom. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, crafting and music and other things are areas that we've explored and taking that kind of like Lego approach to things and um, having some element of like the way we think about learning is, you know, maximizing agency. So guided learning that then enables people to go off and learn themselves and explore. Um, so it would be that type of kind of platform potentially where we teach people and then they go and take it to the first extent that they they want to. And I think that is probably industry agnostic. Yeah, great. Thanks. Cool. Um, well, look, it's been, it's been really nice having you on, Perrin. Um, I thought it'd be nice to, to wrap up with a couple of, uh, a couple of the standards um, sort of desert island discs type questions. Um, cool. So, um, favorite book that you've read recently that you'd recommend? Um, so that would be Creativity Inc., um, which is a great. If you, if anyone hasn't read it, um, I would I would highly recommend taking a look. It tells you how to build, um, you know, build a creative enterprise, which I think is the world that we're all going to be living in. If not we aren't living in already so mm. Mm. all right yeah i'll check that out and uh a couple of companies that you've seen recently in in your work that uh that you think are exciting and should be on people's radar yeah i think there's um there's a company in the u.s called Buildbox, uh which is a little bit under the radar now um they will be announcing around soon and i think you'll see the kind of the degree of ambition that they have and, and what they're trying to do in this space um, around allowing anyone to create with kind of almost professional quality tools, building a community around it. Um, I think that's a really, really exciting company and one which, you know, we'd love to kind of track and follow. Um, I think, yeah, within the ed tech space, 
Um, there's, there's a few examples of like companies taking a very traditional approach to things, but one that I really like um, is a company called Lingoda, um, who are based in Germany, um, and they are at kind of $20 million annual recurring revenue, um, and are basically just taking the kind of language learning model uh, that language schools, you know, in European capitals uh, have had, and has kind of been a bit of a monopoly, you know, you want to learn Italian, you go to Rome, and you go um, be part of a language school, and you're a serious language learner. Taking that model and, and turning it online and just allowing that kind of 24-7 element to be expressed a little bit more. Um, and I think, you know, they are executing very, very well, and no one, you know, you Duolingo everyone's heard of, and you never learn a language to fluency on Duolingo. I haven't right. heard of anyone who's done that. This way good. of turning anyone into a, with a certain number of hours, turning anyone into kind of an expert language, which I think is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. I've got a friend who's building something similar. He's actually in the own community, um, which is like a yeah, language learning community. I think, that, I think there's massive opportunity in, in that space. Um, that, that sort of peer-to-peer -peer learning generally feels like there's, there's so much to unlock there. Um, and uh, what was the last one I wanted to ask you? All right, yeah. Is there anyone you know that you think would be a great person to, to get on next and, and to, to meet the Odin community? Um, on the investor side or the founder side? Either, either. Cool. Um, I think, yeah, I think on the investor side, there's a, there's a bunch of very, very interesting people out there. Mm. Um, but I love, I really love the guys at Emerge Education. So um, Mario from Emerge, if you're interested in the future of higher education, um, I, would, I would definitely get him to do a, do a talk like this. I think really, really nice guy and we've known each other for a while. Yeah. Um, on the founder side, um, I love everything that's going on in terms of the kind of network that I've had at, at Babylon Health and people mm. who are very, very smart and have built something really cool, kind of going off and doing their own thing. Mm. Um, so there's a handful of founders out there, but uh, one person I would draw your attention to is uh, a guy called Svere, um, who's Norwegian, and he's currently the CTO of Lexolv, who are trying to build the Babylon for, for legal. And I think that is oh, a cool. really interesting space to kind of innovate within because so much is done really badly. Mm, mm. All right. Um, look, thanks very much for, for coming on. It's been really good to do this. You're, you're the first of, of many, actually, hopefully. So uh, what I'm going to do afterwards, guys, is... <laughs> well, we had good attendance anyway. So obviously, you know, people were curious to listen. Um, what I'm going to do afterwards, guys, is... Um, is, is share a bit of a write up with the with the key the key things Parin mentioned and maybe some links to some of the, the stuff that you've mentioned over the course of the conversation. So I'll share all, I'll share all that afterwards. Um, thanks everyone for coming. We're doing another event uh, next week around the same time. We'll have two guys who are Mark and Mark who are in the Odin community who are both ex Odin uh, ex Open Cosmos um, who are a space company active in, in Europe. So we'll be talking about space um and and their views on, on where the future of space is and uh yeah any questions give me a shout you can reach out to uh to Parin in, in the slack community or you know on linkedin have you got twitter where should people follow you what do you want to... I, yeah linkedin is way better for me i think twitter i i do i do struggle to get drawn into um what is the next stock that i should put my money into um but yeah <laughs> linkedin is great um and yeah slack is also really good all right all right Cheers, guys. See ya.